Hey, welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today we are going to be talking about finance. Boring, boring, boring finance. And finance is probably the most boring thing on the entire planet, except on those rare moments when finance goes wrong and starts to impinge upon our daily lives. And then finance seems like this hideous, dark force that is always around the corner waiting for us to slip up. We all remember the 2008 financial crisis. I sure do because it happened just after I graduated and it really quashed my employment opportunities for a long time. Now, this whole cycle of booms and busts in the stock market affecting people's daily lives goes back to, guess, the 19th century. And we're going to be talking about how that happened. And one of the things that I discovered today that is kind of interesting is that I think that this whole process of finance capitalism was driven by war. Two flavors that taste great together, war and finance. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. In the first part, we're going to be talking about how in the 18th century, war drove new means of financing the state, which in turn led to a small group of people becoming professional stock traders. In the second bit, we're going to be talking about how after the peace of 1815, when Britain was largely without European wars, this kind of financial activity shifted into new places, creating markets in labor and markets for stocks that were deeply intertwined. Our story begins with a hideous defeat. In 1690, at the Battle of Beachy Head, the joint Dutch and British forces were routed by France. Now, I don't want to go too much into the background here, but just remember, in the 18th century, if there's a war, it's between Britain and France because the guys hate each other. And in 1690, the French were on top. The entire British Navy pretty much had been destroyed. And the thing about navies is that they were like the air forces of the 18th and 19th centuries. They were super expensive. So for Britain to rebuild its navy, it needed to get money. But the thing about the state back then is that there wasn't a lot of good ways that the state could get money. It could, you know, levy a tax, but there wasn't an IRS to go out and get it from people. Also, there weren't things that you could tax. There wasn't an income tax. There were some consumption taxes, but, you know, William of Orange, who was king at the time, was going to have a really hard time raising money. The solution came in 1694 with the Bank of England, and it's a little bit complicated, but it's really, really important to figure out what happened. The basics of it are this. A bunch of London merchants gave the government a ton of money on the promise that every year or so they would get a little bit of it back for a certain fixed term. Now, why did they trust the government on this? Well, because it came with a little catch. This debt was funded. There was a particular tax that the government could levy that then basically went into the pockets of these merchants. Now, over and over and over again, over the course of 18th century, the government would create new batches of these securities, or government bonds as we might call them. They would need money, and they would go over to the merchants and beg for money, and the merchants would go, yes please, here, here's some money, now just keep on paying back these bonds every year for, you know, the rest of all time, pretty much. 
Now, the strength of this system was that it allowed the British government to get a ton of money really, really quickly. Wars don't happen every year. They're surprising. And this allowed the government to push money suddenly into the places where it needed. The other thing that it did is that it allowed the people who were invested in the government, all of these merchants who'd given their money to the government, a mechanism of trusting the government. If you were a merchant who just gave, you know, half of your fortune to the, you know, Chancellor of the Exchequer, you would not want the government to fail. It made everybody part of the same team. And over the 18th century, as Britain got into more and more wars, this fund grew. This funded debt grew and grew and grew. Now, the thing about this funded debt is after, you know, uh, the middle of the 18th century, we don't need to get into exactly how, it was easily traded, much like bonds are today. And the people trading it were these little weird merchants and stock jobbers and stockbrokers who hung around in the coffee houses near Exchange Alley. Most of their customers were banks who needed the bonds to be transferred short term because of complicated stuff in the money market, which we do not need to go into. Believe me, I tried to understand it today and we do not need to go into why banks need this. And another small way in which war aided the development of financial capitalism in Britain is because in the 17th century, the French kicked out all of their Protestants and they were really good at banking and they had a lot of money and they went to, guess where, London. And so London got an infusion of rich merchants who had international connections and a lot of cash. So this process of the government needing more money for merchants and getting more debt continued on throughout the 18th century. And the government debt actually became a really, really, really solid investment. I think it paid about three or 4% a year, no matter what, which is great. It is a really good investment, especially in the 18th century, where your other kinds of investments are in like long distance trading, which you don't even know if the ship is gonna come back after you've you know invested all of your money in it. And this process continued until the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815. And this presented a problem for all those nerdy stock jobbers and stockbrokers who had been gathering around an exchange alley. By the way, they had started a big building in 1801, which they called the Stock Exchange, which is, you know, the organization that still runs the London Stock Exchange today. So after the national debt stopped growing because there weren't as many wars, the stock droppers and stockbrokers needed another thing to invest in. They needed to expand beyond British government securities. They needed something with more flexibility and the same rate of return. What they found was foreign funds. In around 1820, they started to invest in the funds of foreign governments. This was great for countries like Brazil that needed short-term infusions of cash and were willing to sell bonds on the London market. Later, maybe in the 1830s, the stock exchange also started on a large scale to invest in joint stock companies. Now, at the time, these were mainly still, you know, canals and roads and stuff like that, and we'll get to that in a quick second. So, we're in the 19th century. Things are at peace, except for the Industrial Revolution, which is changing everything right under people's feet. And we get a couple of movements that are going to seem really, really familiar. The first is what Henry Maine called 
the movement from status to contract. Now we can kind of get this implicitly. In the traditional world, you work with your family or you know, with the people down the street. The people you work for are determined by your status. But in the 19th century, in the Industrial Revolution, you work under a contract. I, you know, Brendan Mackey, historian extraordinaire, go out in the free market and sell my labor to whoever is willing to contract me. You, the listener, for the low, low price of zero dollars. We have a contract, we've signed it, it's all legal. This is free and it is also now binding. The date that this starts to happen is around, you know, 1750 to 1850. And of course, it isn't entirely free because, you know, you, the employer, have a lot more resources than me, the employee. And there's customary inequalities that are built into the system. Female workers get paid a lot less than male workers just by custom. Um, for example, in 1830, female mule spinners were employed at half the rates of male uh, mule spinners. Also, you get things like job segregation. Women were given particular kinds of jobs, and these different kinds of jobs often paid less and were less rewarding. The second big move after the creation of the labor market is the creation of the joint stock company, which is what all of these nerds on Exchange Alley were buying and selling in the 1830s. Joint stock companies had actually been pretty much banned in Britain after the 1720 financial bubble. Um, to make a joint stock company before 1825, you would need a special act of parliament, and they were only used for things like canals or mining companies or public utilities. Well, in 1825, the Bubble Act was repealed, and in 1844, you got the Companies Registration Act, which made it a ton easier for companies to become incorporated. Incorporating company means that you turn it into a legal person. If I, you know, suddenly decide that I no longer want to run Making of a Historian by myself, I can incorporate a company called Making of a Historian LLC, a limited liability company that is a legal person that can take on contracts, can be sued for debts, and can even, you know, give testimony in court through an agent. And this company's registration act was a step along the way. It made the incorporation of legal persons a lot easier. Surprisingly, there was another bubble immediately after the uh, Companies Registration Act, and this was in railways. Uh, in 1840, there was 48 million pounds worth of paid-up capital on the stock market of railways. In 1845, five years later, that had doubled to nearly 90 million pounds. And in 1846, a lot of those railway companies were bankrupt. The final piece of the puzzle is the development of limited liability legislation. Now, we talked about this briefly before, but let's just go over what it means. A limited liability company is a company in which the partners or shareholders are not on the hook for the entire debt of the company itself. They're only on the hook for as much as they put in. So if you want to invest in making of a historian LLC, you can do so. Just send money to me and you'll get a share of the imaginary earnings. Now, if it were not an LLC, when inevitably making of a historian goes bankrupt, you could be on the hook for the entire amount of the debts that I've run up, you know, buying computer parts and delicious fruit from the organic, you know, farmer's market. But with an LLC, the shareholders are not on the hook. This combination of having an easy way for companies to get incorporated and then for being able to make the 
people who are involved in those companies not on the hook for the debts that the companies run up made the founding of companies a ton easier. So I hope that made sense. I'm gonna go a little early because I'm really hungry and still kind of burnt out. Uh, I hope tomorrow I have a little bit of a, a clear narrative for you guys. Um, thank you very, very much for uh, Jonathan Lear who made our intro music and our outro music. And thank you to Duncan Barton who made our icon. Uh, thanks very much for listening to us today. If you like us, please subscribe on iTunes, rate us and share it on all of your social media devices. Uh, it really, really helps. And I'll see you guys tomorrow.